Welcome to the Turd Nerds. We are the functional gastroenterology podcast discussing all things poop. Before we take the plunge into today's episode, let us tell you a bit about ourselves. I'm Dr. Rebecca Sand, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist, and I specialize in all things gastroenterology, hormones, and fertility. I'm Dr. Ami Kapadia, and I'm a medical doctor trained in family medicine and functional medicine with a special interest in gastrointestinal health, food and environmental allergies, and autoimmune disease. And I'm Dr. Alana Gurvich, a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist who is board certified in naturopathic gastroenterology. I specialize in inflammatory bowel disease, IBS, and other functional digestive disorders. Let's jump into today's episode. The following discussion is for educational purposes only and not intended to diagnose or treat any diseases or conditions. Please consult your doctor before incorporating any of this information into your care. The information presented on this podcast is not medical advice. We are so excited about today's episode, and it's a big episode. It also happens to be one of the topics that everybody has a lot of questions about. We're going to talk about constipation but not all of constipation, just a small piece of constipation. Dr. Sand, can you tell us more? Sure. So today we are talking about constipation drugs. This is a topic that is near and dear to my heart and bowels. Mm -hmm. Um, So to kick it off today, let's just start with a couple definitions that are going to kind of guide where we go today. Um, Then we'll sprinkle in some data as we talk. So in short, I'm only going to be running us through drugs for IBSC, irritable bowel syndrome constipation, and chronic idiopathic constipation. Um, just for reference, this does not include slow transit constipation, which makes up about 25% of constipation, and um, defecatory disorders, which is about 13%. Are there? Is it really that different? Um, obviously, there's a lot of crossover, but if we're going by Rome criteria, uh, yes, I guess. Okay. So, um, Rebecca, just to kind of go over, you said you're not going to be talking about slow transit, transit constipation. So how well, is that? Can you tell us a little bit more about? There's a lot of crossover because okay. <laughs> I am going to talk about prokinetics. Okay, because I assumed a lot of constipation is slow transit, but it sounds like yeah. not necessarily. So and we're yeah. only going to focus on the good naturopathic stuff like herbs and water. Not at all. <laughs> But feel free to add those in. Um, Mainly, the main categories I'll be hitting on, and we can kind of bounce around or or, uh, popcorn style if we want. Um, Diet and lifestyle, I'm not going to cover those too much. That's basically low FODMAP. You know, there's a lot of data on that one. All the other good diets we know about, exercise, water, stress reduction, things like that. Um, I'll do a brief run through of the -the over-the-counter laxatives if we want. There are five types. I mean, that would be helpful. Um, And then the main categories of drugs that we can pull from are the antidepressants the secretagogues, prokinetics, uh, which has its own subsets, opioid receptor agonists, macrolide antibiotics, dopamine antagonists, and my favorite to talk about, probiotics. Let's not do the -the over-the-counter because that seems like, (laughs) I mean, I didn't, I think as somebody who treats constipation regularly, I had no idea about multiple of these drug classes. Why don't we just do a quick, quick over-the-counter overview, just so people know whether or not they've already tried those. Okay. I'll do 30 be seconds or less. And you didn't mention fiber, Rebecca. Is that not something you typically... That's considered an over-the-counter laxative. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. Why don't we just do a quick recap of those? Okay. Um, over-the-counter laxatives in under 30 seconds. First, we've got the stimulant laxatives. So those are your bisacoidal, senna, aloe, latex, and caffeine. Uh, these um, can be habit-forming for the bowels and most likely to cause uh, cramping and dependence. Then we've got our osmotic 
Those are the magnesium citrate oxide, polyethylene glycol, lactulose, sorbitol, glycerin, sodium phosphate. Uh, these are not ideal for some folks because of the risk of dehydration. Then we've got the bulk forming laxative. So this is uh, where the fiber comes in. Psyllium husk, methyl cellulose, inulin, wheat dextrin, and more. Um, a lot of people giving these recommendations are now recommending just try to get it in your diet, about 30 grams per day. Um, and there have been some cool studies showing that two kiwis per day or four prunes per day um, can actually be as effective as all of those fiber supplements. I will actually tell you that kiwi right now is having a moment. Everybody yeah. now knows how high fiber yes. it is. Yes, yep. yes, yes. Great for constipation. I've got just a quick question, Rebecca, with magnesium. I know you said some of those other ones in that category. Yep aren't great, but just to just to remind that a lot of people are deficient in it, so it may, may be acting in different ways, totally not true. just osmotic. As, as an and, osmotic. Yep, exactly. And on that same note, that fiber has a lot of other benefits too in the body. So right. these are kind of pulling from a couple different systems and supporting us in different ways that are worth considering. Including the prebiotic system. Exactly. Prebiotic, microbiome, and cardiovascular benefits. Can I just um, add one thing about magnesium? In residency, my, my attendings would make fun of me that I just gave everyone magnesium for everything. But um, <laughs> since most of, most of us are deficient given it's depleted by stress, caffeine, loud noises, other things. Standard American um, diet. Right. So uh, just to mention, my favorite magnesium to give for people with constipation is citramate. Um, mm -hmm. It's worked better than citrate and other forms for the majority of my patients. So I just want to throw that out there. I would like to throw out that I have had the exact opposite experience. Okay. <laughs> yeah, really interesting. My experience actually is that the uh, malate or the it's citra, citramate is a mixture of citrate, citrate and, and malate, malate, right? Yes. My experience is that the malate isn't strong enough okay. and the citrate is the one that you need also for my body. Interesting. Like, I feel like I need way higher doses and patients need, you know, 800, 1,000 milligram doses for the citrate malate mm -hmm. and like 400 to 350, 400, 500 with just the citrate. And okay. by, Interesting. by powerful in the body, you mean it is more, more absorbed, meaning it has less effect in the bowel? I, my experience with citrate is that it is poorly absorbed right. and therefore acts like the osmotic laxative that it is. And malate gets more absorbed. Yes. And malate, I find, has a little bit more activity on the nervous system, mm -hmm. which is the other benefit of magnesium because yeah, it right. calms you down and helps you sleep. Right. Yeah. With, with citrate, I've had a lot of patients where they give up on it because they just get diarrhea from it and they can't find a good dose. So it might just be different types of patients that we're seeing. And perhaps better absorbed magnesium malate is helping with the anxiety side effect right. <laughs> or how anxiety is playing into constipation. For and then I feel like true. my experience with oxide is it never gets me anywhere. Right. Like I've never used water. oxide. Yeah. I've I never agree. used oxide. Milk of magnesia yeah. is supposed to be really great. And I personally never helped me one bit. And then my patients, I can't get it to work either. Do you think that we're sitting in a room with a bunch of people with constipation. I mean, <laughs> we're all that, pretty jazzed about it. I've so. been taking magnesium citrate for several years. One of my mentors said magnesium and zinc were the two main nutrient type supplements he would use. And I found that to be similar in my practice. For zinc also for constipation. No, that's totally off topic. Yeah. Just Sorry. magnesium and zinc in general, as far as nutrient deficiencies that he would find in the majority of his patients based on clinical experience and energetic testing that he did. Interesting. Okay, so now back to the topic yes. of OTCs. The final two, uh, and, and it's really one and a half. So then we've got the lubricants, um, which are mainly mineral oil, oh, used yeah. as enema or oral, um, mainly just softened stool, and then stool softeners, docusate, um, which is mostly recommended uh, post-surgery or birth. Um, and that really concludes the over-the-counter options for people. So okay, um, considered first line in addition to fiber. 
Um, any final thoughts before we move on to the prescriptions? It seems like there's a lot of different classes for one, just one problem. I, yeah. I have one I quick thing. So. Do you have any quick tips for people on fiber as far as what you found tolerable and helpful given you also mentioned low FODMAP diet being helpful? So I know it's individualized, but any quick tips on foods that you found tolerable in patients you're trying to increase fiber in? And I can tell you my quick ones after you're done. Yeah, I think it really depends on what else is going on. So obviously if it's a patient with SIBO, um, they're not gonna tolerate fibers too much. I will say, I, I, and I joke about this with my patients, I think psyllium husk could put me out of business. Um, people tolerate it really well. It creates amazing bowel movements for people. And I learned from a recent Curbsiders episode with Dr. Iris Wang, um, that one gram of fiber will translate to 2.7 grams of stool. Okay. So it helps in like getting fully <laughs> evacuated yes. and like forming stool. And is it actually doing that or is it just, are you just releasing the fiber, you know? Right. So, okay. What are your thoughts? You know, I, I recommend a lot of flax and chia seed if they mm -hmm. don't have trouble with those, if right. they don't have a lot of dysbiosis going on just because they have other health benefits. So I try to ask people to do tables, two tablespoons a day of some combination, easy ways to put it in like gluten-free oats or whatever, um, any type of baked, baked type of um, good that they're making, or I have patients that just drink it in water. Yeah. <laughs> and then I think my actual favorites are to use prunes and apricots. Mm -hmm. And so you get dried fruit, hope, hopefully sulfate-free, yeah. you stew them, and then they can oh, add them to their great, oatmeal, yeah. which yeah, is also, that's great. the oatmeal has fiber, they can add flax. Really, if we ate fiber, I think that a lot of our chronic diseases would just get mm -hmm. better mm -hmm. because the bowels would be eliminating. Except in the case when it worsens bloating for people, right, yes. which is where these prokinetics come. And also always a reminder with fiber, it's water dependent. Mm -hmm. You have to float the boat to yep. get it to come out. So drink your water. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and for those osmotic laxatives too, easy to dehydrate. Um, so let me just run through a couple categories here. I'm not going to touch on this one too much, but antidepressant medications. They're prescribed. Uh, mainly we're looking at the SSRIs and tricyclic antidepressants. Uh, they take about eight weeks to take effect. SSRIs do have mild prokinetic and anxiolytic effects. Mild prokinetic, you know, regular anxiolytic effects. Um, whereas tricyclic antidepressants um, are more visceral analgesics. So think about it in your visceral hypersensitivity patients, um, but less prokinetic. So they're more supported for IBS diarrhea. And that's really about it. I don't, I don't tend to prescribe them too much. Do either of you do that? No, but you know, what's interesting is all of the new emerging data that's coming out of the psychobiome, mm -hmm. which is like the bacteria that makes up the mucosa or the, in the large bowel, they actually think that its activity is by changing neurotransmitters. Yeah, and crazy. so they think that the antidepressant meds are actually working on the microbiome yeah. to affect their antidepressant activity so and cool. not on the neurotransmitters. Yeah. And so that makes sense. Yeah. That makes sense. And I don't prescribe them uh, these days for digestive issues. But um, back when I was younger, we used, to, especially if someone had migraines as well or something like that, nortriptyline is generally more tolerated than the other tricyclic. Mm -hmm. So we would use that one for GI, IBS, migraine type symptoms together. Yeah. And the prokinetics, a big chunk of them work on serotonin yep. receptors. Right. So um the next big chunk here are the pro secretory agents or secretagogues which is a great word, it is um, a great word. these are <laughs> these are cool because they have low systemic absorption um but they're kind of like i think of them as like blunt force bring water into the bowels um think magnesium citrate but uh heavier mm -hmm. and often covered by insurance and those would be Linza, Samatesia. Yep, 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 yep. So um, the uh, non-brand names, um, 
Luby Pro Stone, which is the Amatiza, um, is a, let me see here. Chloride channel. Yeah, chloride channel. It's the only one. It was the first one. And basically, this is working similarly to how um, cholera works in the body. Flushing things Sounds out. great. So we don't use it in kids. <laughs> we don't use it in kids. High risk of dehydration, but it is approved for all genders, which is nice. Um, downside of that one is it has a higher rate of nausea than the other ones in the mm. same group. Um, the other con is that you have to take it twice a day. The rest of them are mainly once a day. Okay. Um, the other ones are the guanylate cyclase agonists. Um, and basically this works by also bringing chloride in. It also brings a little bit of bicarbon. Water comes into the intestinal lumen and we increase fluid and transit. This one is based on E. coli. This is how cool. E. coli gives you <laughs> so diarrhea. Cool. Yep. Yes, we've learned from nature. Yep. Um, this one, I, I didn't know this, but in doing a little bit of research, I found that um, it also reduces sensory neuron stimulation in the colon. Um, so it can help reduce pain um, and promote bowel movements through that mechanism as well. These two drugs are linactylide and uh, placanotide. Um, so linactylide, anyone anyone here ever taken that one? That's Linzest brand? Yep. Yeah. Uh, What's been your experience? Diarrhea. Yep. And that's what it's known for, <laughs> profuse diarrhea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interestingly about this one, they have three different dosing categories, whether you're IBS-C, chronic idiopathic, or opioid-induced constipation. Okay. Um, the highest dosing is recommended for IBS-C. Um, but they have it in 290 micrograms, 145, and now some people get away with the 72 microgram. Um, the other one, placanotide, uh, which is true lance, um, equally as effective but causes less diarrhea. I also think that when I was studying this drug, it does have effect on pain. So that true lance effects will downregulate the, the visceral hypersensitivity cool. feelings yeah. where Linzess does not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I think they all, I mean, they all act slightly differently, but that one is I think that, I feel like the rep, the drug rep was like, and this is what we do better. That's how right. I know it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you find that um, GI doctors or other primary care physicians are using these very much? Because I, I can't say that I see them on people's med lists very often, um, even in urgent care. So I'm just kind of curious. If my, you're... my experience is if they're coming into the gastro and they're having constipation, this is their first line treatment. Which one? I feel like Lynn's S gets started, yeah. gets used most. I just don't see people continue it because yeah. it causes maybe that's why I don't see it. <laughs> yeah, like E. coli, like diarrhea. Compliance is low. I, I think I said this before, but you know, Mark Davis, who's one of my favorite doctors, said the yeah. opposite of diarrhea is not constipation. Yeah. It's a normal bowel movement. Yeah. And the opposite of constipation is not diarrhea. Yeah. 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 yeah except for Lynn's Um so those that's really that whole category of drugs. We've got three main ones. They are great and they just help you secrete stool. Okay. Um, then we've got my favorite prokinetics. That's true. So, um, <laughs> that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, these are serotonin agonists and we've got old ones and we've got new ones. Um, we've also in here got opioid receptor agonists, dopamine antagonists, macrolides and probiotics. So a lot goes into this, like move the bowels prokinetics category. Um, anybody want to start with any particular branch? So Rebecca, just to, to recap, so you just finished the Cretagogues yep. and now you're going into prokinetics. prokinetics okay. Yep. And those are the two main groups of drugs help you just, and, and the Cretagogues have less effect on the small bowel and a lot of prokinetics. I'm, I'm going to try to synthesize the ones that are mainly for constipation. Although a lot of them were developed for upper GI stuff like gastroparesis hmm. and even, um, GERD. 
Okay. So, and would you say that they mostly are working on small and large bowel? It really depends. Okay. So let's start with a, a serotonin agonist. Great. My favorite. Yes. So um, let's see here. Serotonin um, is released, uh, just a tiny bit of background so we know what these drugs are doing here. Serotonin is released from the enterochromaffin cells in the intestinal mucosa. Basically, when we um, add a serotonin agonist, it provides the main propulsion force, the prokinetic is what we think about, for defecation. Interestingly, um, the newer drugs also exert anti-inflammatory effects on the GI, which I think you've talked yeah. about um, before. Um, and the newer ones, the newer classes of drugs, which includes procalipride, show evidence of promoting neurogenesis. So basically helping to heal the nervous system. So can, let's just stop. Yep. Effects of creating neurogenesis, it actually reheals nerves that has stopped working in the process of helping you poop. Yep. Okay, I have two questions about that. That's One is, amazing. do we have any data on how long it takes to regenerate the nerves or what those studies have shown? I have I clinical have data okay. where I have seen that over a course of one to three years, I have patients with very, very chronic constipation reversing. At normal doses, through like at standard doses for CIC? Standard doses are somewhere, I think published data is somewhere between half a milligram to two milligrams. Right. And I feel like in some of the trials, they're going as high as four. Okay. I have this experience in that around two milligram dose. And you're talking about procalipride, right? Procalipride. Yeah. Okay. Um, and I learned that um, safety trials on procalipride went up to 10. 10 and years? 10 milligrams. 10 milligrams. Oh, 10 milligrams. So it's recommended, This the data mostly showing for efficacy is two or four. Two is what's FDA approved for chronic idiopathic constipation. One is approved if you have kidney or renal impairment. Um, mm. So two is mainly the dose that people yeah. get, but some people need more. But safety-wise, it seems to be a pretty safe drug. So even if someone only needs 0.5 milligrams, mm -hmm. let's say for SIBO, post-SIBO treatment motility, right. would you still likely give them at least one milligram if you're trying to aim for neurogenesis? No, that's okay. not my experience. Okay. My experience is literally I try to give them the lowest dose that has efficacy. Okay. Also, while yes, it's highly effective for post-SIBO or IBS constipation, I don't think it's FDA approved for it. Yeah. Right. And so you have to just be aware of that when you're prior authoring it for insurance. And when completely not related to what you just said, but when you're talking about the neurogenesis piece, I'm thinking about post-infectious SIBO because of that molecular right. mimicry that happens in the Miculin. small intestine. Yeah. 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 That's, I think that is absolutely correct of how you should so be thinking. Cool. Yes. And so who, cool. and my question has always been who hasn't had infectious diarrhea at some point in their life? <laughs> I know. Is there anyone? <laughs> some lucky folks. I mean, if you've gone to India, well, I have many I, times. I will also say I've never gone to India. Okay, do you but still have? I still have managed to have the yeah. infectious IBS. Yeah. I okay. didn't get it in India, but I had it just about everywhere else. So. My other question is, Rebecca, you mentioned just in a side chat that you heard a GI doctor at a meeting mentioning that there might be some concern for dependence on that drug. Yeah. And I don't know if you know anything more about that that you I've looked want to into share. it. It was at DDW, um, and it was a um, presentation on precalipride, and he mentioned that. So I have kind of an offhand comment yeah. I, in my experience. It's the opposite. Yeah, I, know. I mean, in my experience, I can get people or not everybody, not everybody, mm -hmm. but give me sol three solid years. Yeah. The interesting thing that I've seen about that is some people do get like dependent on the dose and we do need to go up or, or resistant to that dose they're on. But then I have had people come off of it. So I don't know. My other crazy. question is uh, I've been using a lot of the sample trial um, samples that we have for procalipride um, with several patients and they're they seem to be giving up on it too early if they get loose stools once or twice so yep. I, so any clinical information you want to share on how you educate patients before you start them on it 
um, so they don't give up. So they don't give up on it prematurely. Yeah. So what I read is that the adverse effects most commonly associated with precalibrite are the headache, um, abdominal pain, nausea, diarrhea, and usually they start in almost everybody and usually disappear within a few days. Okay. Um, unlike other medications where it's a couple of weeks. Right. Precalibrite is a, a couple of days, at least in literature. Have you found that to be the case? I usually, my answer is yes. I usually start low yeah. and I tell them don't stop until you're done with our seven day sample. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. And that might be 14 doses. Right. Um, I will also say the other cool thing about precalibrite is the worse your constipation, the more effective it is. Yeah. And that's what studies are showing. Yeah. That most of the studies uh, that have been run on people are people who are completely, none of the drugs worked like refractory constipation, nothing's working and precalibrate did. And I'm going to say that's not a hundred percent. Yep. There's right. definitely a subset who it does not work sure. on. Yep. Those people are very frustrating, yep. but I feel like where I generally am starting now is once they fail out of the other ones that they have to go through with insurance. Yeah. I try to get precalibrate as soon as I can. Okay. So I just want to summarize to get into the details of giving a patient education before starting that first seven day sample we have from the drug rep start at 0.5 milligrams you might get diarrhea you might get a little bit of a headache upset stomach it's okay just keep going at 0.5 milligrams if it's not working in a week or so up it to one milligram give it another week or so and then maybe go to two milligrams does that seem appropriate i usually i say it take it, it can take up to three days to go from your mouth to the toilet so i'll have an increased dose every three to four days okay because it sucks having constipation. So you just have them yeah, titrate a bit more rapidly yeah, over those couple yeah. weeks from 0.5 to 2 if needed. Yeah. Or 4 if they stall out at 2. Okay. Yep. Um, I found the coolest fact about Prucalipride. We all know I love this drug. Uh, but I learned that it's associated with memory enhancing effects. And there are actually no, published <laughs> studies showing that Prucalipride is associated with cognitive enhancement in humans. It was an article published in Nature. I mean, so that makes sense. I really feel if, like they should be paying me. Yeah. I mean, you should try to get on their <laughs> I mean, no joke, advertising dude. marketing team. But that, I mean, that makes sense. Because if you have stool sitting there that's fermenting, also create, that. like, you know, LPS, increase increase fermentation byproducts, totally. increase SIBO and CIFO metabolites. You're, those are the patients that have a lot of brain fog and such. Yep. So. I got to say, one of my favorite things about being a naturopath, like no joke, one of my favorite things about being a naturopath is that we have all of these crazy kooky ideas that everybody calls us a quack about mm -hmm. that then 10 to 20 years later gets validated. Right. If you ask any naturopath from the 1970s who basically yeah. back then you had to get arrested for protesting something to be a naturopath, yeah. they always told you <laughs> that if you weren't pooping, nothing else was working like the brain. Yeah. Now we have this drug that works, the better it works, the yeah. worse your constipation is, makes your brain work better. They were right. I, know. I mean, it goes back even further, right? Ayurvedic medicine, right. Hippocrates, yeah. all disease starts in the gut. Yeah. I mean, Ayurvedic medicine, they focus a lot on the digestive tract as yeah. well. So yep. you, naturopaths were coming along a little bit later, but it goes back even <laughs> a little further. Later. <laughs> we learned from the best. Um, so just to kind of go back on this whole big category of drugs here, the serotonin agonists, um, we've got the older class, which is like the tag, how do you say that? Tesserard. Tegasurad. Tegasurad. It's Zelnor, brand Zelnor. Zelnor. Okay, go with that. So this one, um, do you want me to talk about why it was taken off the market yes, and what I they learned about it? Yes, I think it's very important. Okay. So it was taken off the market in 2007 um, due to concerns about uh, MIs and stroke. I thought in the 70s. I don't know. What I read today was 2007. Okay. Um, they did a follow-up study on it with 18,000 patients. 
um, looking at adverse cardiovascular events, um, those occurred in 0.11% of people on it versus 0.01% of people in the placebo group. And all affected individuals, meaning all the people who had those adverse events, had pre-existing cardiovascular risk or disease, frank cardiovascular disease going into it. Um, so they repeated a cohort study showing absolutely no cardiovascular risk. It was reintroduced in 2019 only for IBS-C in women under the age of 65 and idiopathic or um, functional constipation in women under 55. And the, the important thing is these women have to have no other cardiovascular exactly. risk points. That's the most important. Yep, 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 yep. I, I mean, it doesn't seem like we'd ever want to use that one instead of procalipride, unless there Sometimes was a prior procalipride off issue. procalipride doesn't work. Yeah. Right. As a backup. So okay. this is the, basically the difference between the old and the new ones is as we figured out the serotonin 5-HT receptors, 5-HT4 receptors, um, they were able to get more specific about what binds. Um, and these ones were just less specific. And now like procalipride and some newer ones I'll talk to you about, um, just bind it really well. And that's so that's why procalipride doesn't have the same cardiac effects yep, and such. Yep. Um, Cisapride is another one. Is that one you're familiar with? That one has a bad side effect profile from yeah, what I remember. Yeah, real, real yeah. bad. Um, you can get it in the States still, but you have to be on like some specific, some special registry for it saying you really, really need it, but very associated with cardiac arrhythmias. Um, it is, fun fact, used for toxic megacolon in cats and rabbits oh, very widely. Oh, wow. I mean, that gives you a lot of insight on what it's doing to yep. the intestine. And combined with metoclopramide. Oh, wow. Yeah. So. In animals, you mean? Mm -hmm. okay. Cats and rabbits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor my colon rabbits. So sweet. Um, the newer generation ones are cool. Um, the only one we've got right now is Procalipride. Um, these are more selective 5-HT4, and they don't have the um, cardiac effects. They don't bind to that receptor that really deals with potassium in the body. So much, much safer. This is where we get Procalipride. Super safe. We've already talked about that. There are a couple other that aren't available in the U.S. right now, but are coming out and have some really cool things about them. Um, one of them is being studied for gastroparesis and constipation. It's Mosapride. Mm. Um, it's in Asia right now, and it has been shown to improve glycemic control as well. Whoa. So great for gastroparesis and diabetes. And then um, another one, another two, actually. Let me see if I can say these. Neuronapride and Velucitride. Um, also work on, um, a couple other receptors, including dopamine, just D2 receptor antagonistic properties, which is like, um, domperidone. Oh, and that but more one, selective than domperidone. Yeah. Domperidone is one that I've used like with a sprinkling of patients that yeah. are being co-treated with a gastro yes. and it's very effective for gastroparesis, yep. but it has a lot of side effects, which is why it's totally. not used very regularly. Cause it binds to three dopamine receptors. Oh, wow. Um, and a lot of those have more central nervous system activity. That's a lot of downriver side yeah, effects. Yeah. yeah. So they're working on that. Uh, refining that one. Yeah. So those are the prokinetics. And then any idea if they're going to come to U.S. market? They're in safety trials. It, I mean, uh, some of them are in safety trials. Um, some of them just aren't approved yet. I would hate to say that it has to do with, you know, release of drugs and they want to make sure they make money off of certain ones first, but they might. Yeah. <laughs> so Rebecca, can you just give us your summary of, let's say prior auth wasn't an issue and prior auth is an issue. Right. What would be your order of selection of constipation drugs uh, based That's on what you- That's a good question. Yeah, because it's interesting, like procalipride, I think is the one you're kind of getting at here. Procalipride is approved for chronic idiopathic constipation only. You can't give it for- um, IBSC. IBSC, really the only difference is 
abdominal pain and you know that's pretty arbitrary but um generally i they want you to start with the secretagogues they want you to start with the over the counters fiber fail all that and then the secretagogues so and it's what well, i mean a cluster of those the yeah. linzas for sure it's very cheap um and, then and the i feel like i'm seeing more and more prior off hoops now where they're like yeah. we want you to try and fail lactulose yeah or we want you to try and fail tricyclics exactly and tricyclics aren't even recommended i'm pretty sure by the american the aga right now yeah. because they really only help in ibsd and in fact can make constipation right because they're anticholinergic yeah okay and so if you were going to pick a secretagogue which one would you pick to start with do you have a favorite I usually start with anesthesia because I feel like it has less side effects. And I will also say in my experience, it is so patient specific. Mm -hmm. Like I was doing a CBOS, SOS um, docu-series or whatever. And I was talking to the host and she, I was like, yeah, I prefer anesthesia because I feel like people do better. And she was like, I did terrible on it. But on Lynn's S, I had like perfect bowel movements. If the nausea, mm. if they're already having nausea, anesthesia is not going to be a great option because it's the one that can cause nausea. Lynn's S sure i'll have people try and fail it and it's not a bad one to have on hand because you can double it up with some of the others if it's if your amatiza isn't working or something like that you can add a lens s in there for really bad episodes and trulance it works pretty well yeah the problem is that i find is uh people who just have constipation if i can get their bowels moving with magnesium citrate or trulance or whatever and they're their bloating and, and whatnot goes away, awesome. But that's really where the prokinetics come in is if they're still bloated and they're still having more of like middle upper GI symptoms, we need a prokinetic. That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true. So so let's talk about that a little bit more. So you're saying if their constipation is resolved, but they're still experiencing some sort of like general fullness, yeah. bloating, et cetera. Yep. I mean, most of my patients, they tell me it's lower abdominal bloating. But is there other symptoms that you're talking about where that would give tip you off that they might need a motility agent? Well, really, if I, get, if I get the bowels moving, so yeah. if I get them fully evacuated at a regular schedule and they're still having that bloating, whether it's due to post-infectious IBS Whatever or it's from. or SIBO or anything like that, right. um, the prokinetics like in treatment for SIBO and SIBO are really helpful for getting the rest of that GI moving. And that's another reason that in my experience, I don't know if there's data on this, Procalipred is so good because it acts further up in the gut. I mean, it is, there are trials that have shown efficacy for gastroparesis. And do we know, so gastroparesis, and then do we know that it works on the small intestine and large intestine? It does. Okay. Yeah. I really feel like it does. <laughs> yeah, so no, I think the data consists that it yeah. works on both small it's and large intestine. It's just not approved for any yeah. of that. Right. Yeah. So yeah. Um, let's say prior auth wasn't an issue. Yeah. Then give us your go-to. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you sure. probably, so I that's mean, what I, I mean, that's what I, I think too. Like if we didn't have to worry about prior auth, I would do, all the lifestyle stuff, the fiber, if they tolerate it, yeah. some form of magnesium. Sometimes we do vitamin C and then I'd yeah. probably go right to procalipride if we didn't have to. It's cost prohibitive. Yeah. It's very expensive, even if your insurance, you know, in quotes covers it. Right. So I really, I, I will start with the secretagogues because they're generally well tolerated except for lens S and see if that does the trick. Oftentimes bloating is related to just backed up stool. Right. So, you know, and sometimes if we can get it going, retrain the bowels, they don't have to do yeah. anything. And I will also say, like, this is one of the places where sometimes the natural agents yes. it's work not a, amazing. Right. And sometimes it's not enough. And sometimes yeah. it's not enough. Okay. And when you say natural agents, you mean magnesium, vitamin C, and... Fiber, ginger. Artichoke. Artichoke. Lots of herbs. 
Oh yeah, and not even well, like we even talked about Chinese Trifola, herbs. Right. Trifola. There's a ton of Chinese herbs. Yep. Ayurvedic herbs yep. of, often work. When the natural agents work, they really work. And you're talking about some of the combined products as well, like the Modal Pro and this type of thing that we've yep. used for. And I think Idea yeah. Gas or STW5 yep. has some good data behind it. Totally doesn't always work. What's STW5? Idea Gas okay. scientific name. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, they have great data on that from Europe. I think for the past thirty years. So. Yeah. Good stuff. Okay, next, anything on this class? Not yet, not yet. Well, uh, you mean the rest of prokinetics? The rest of prokinetics. Okay, no, uh, let's just move on and we can kind of bounce around as we need to. Um, I think there's a lot coming in that field. There are a lot of drugs that aren't uh, available in the U.S. right now that are so cool. They, Like I said, they kind of start out as um, being studied for gastroparesis. And then, and then we realize, oh, they actually work for constipation and everything else. So um, the next group is the macrolides. So these are the antibiotics. This is like um, erythromycin, clarithromycin, and uh, a couple others. Basically, they're used mostly for um, uh, diabetes gastroparesis, but they also have some studies on post-op ileus and um, colonic pseudoobstruction. Basically, when you use them in low dose, low dose erythromycin, they're microbially inactive, but they've come up with another one called metimicinal. Say it with authority and then I'll be real. No, I'm not good with vowels. Um, that completely lacks the antimicrobial activity. Okay, can so, I tell you what my hesitation is for low-dose erythromycin? Yep. I feel like when I asked you about it several years ago, you told me they use it to fatten animals. They use it to, that is yeah. literally what they give to cows yeah. to give them, put fat on them. So if the, if I have cachexic patients, yeah. I will you possibly consider it. But right. if I don't, there is no way, if it's not fat, if it's fattening up cows, it's going to fatten you up. Right. It never, I never felt good about prescribing that as a prokinetic or motility agent. It just doesn't, even if they say it doesn't have any antimicrobial activity at that dose, it just theoretically seems to not be a great idea given drug resistance and such, but I'm not saying that's backed up by data. I I just never like to do it. I mean, I've definitely used it. It is one of the drugs that where people develop tolerance. And so you do have to take like LDE holidays. So I've definitely used it if they fit into the subset and I have actually seen some efficacy, it's not like, I feel like I'm like Rebecca per cow part is always where I'm going to start yeah. with a, in the drugs, yeah. but if they don't tolerate it, LDE is also significantly more affordable than per cow Right. right. Significantly. True. I've had, I think all of the patients that I've had on it came in on it and then it just stopped working. Right. Yeah. And it wasn't even like that long. It was no. maybe a couple of weeks to a couple of months and it wasn't that great of an effect. So, um, have any of you had experience with low dose naloxone? Wait, do you mean low? You don't mean low dose naltrexone? No, nope, naloxone. No, tell us about that. I've never heard of so, it. So this is in the category of mu opioid receptor agonists, um, and there are kind of two main ones. So the the one chunk that we might not see as much, perhaps, are ones that allow the um, analgesic effects of opioids to persist, but helping with the constipation. And those are those are two other drugs. Naloxone, which we're familiar with, used low dose, um, does actually help with constipation too, hmm. um, two to four grams. Okay, so. wait, wait, can I back up? So naloxone basically acts to outcompete the opiate receptors yep. or the, or blocks it. Yep. blocks it, right? And so is it working because they're taking opiates? Um, well, it can work in folks who aren't taking opiates too for constipation. Does it give them diarrhea? Is that the most common side effect? Not that I saw, not that I saw, but I think all of these potentially can. What's the drug brand? Um, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Okay. 
yeah. Um, but they studied it for in regular dosing and low dosing. So I'm guessing the low dosing, you know, would have less potential to cause the diarrhea. But that was totally new to me. Yep. But it does reverse the analgesic effects. So that's important to know that if you have folks who are taking opioids for whatever, you know, pain management reason, not the drug for them. Okay. What's that drug that they use? Silox, uh, suboxone. Suboxone. Yeah. Like I have patients who are definitely on suboxone and having the constipation secondary to suboxone. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't use this because then the suboxone would start stop working and they would start withdrawing. Seems likely, but I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Yeah. So lots of potential for different types of drugs to come out, you know, and help people. Um, then we've got the dopamine antagonists. Um, can anyone name any of those? Not a one. The quizzing us? Metaclopramide. Oh, oh Reglan. Okay. So Dom, yes. Domperidone. I, I've had only used that for gastroparesis. I didn't know it yeah, was also for that's constipation. That's mostly what they're for. So dopamine antagonists. I don't know if I said agonists before. Um, metaclopramide, high risk of the tardive dyskinesia, depression. It's It acts much more in the brain. Um, and it is mostly proximal motility issues. So upper GI stuff. Domperidone, mostly upper GI stuff. Um, it is less... It, is going to bind in the brain less, less in the CNS than medical fluoride. Um, but there are um, some, there's some data showing that it can affect colon motility as well. So have uh, you seen that at all? Yes. Uh, I have, so I have a couple of really, really severe gastroparesis patients. Mm -hmm. A few of them ended up with colectomies because yeah. they were getting megacolon or on the verge. Right. They were put on Domperidone mm -hmm. through a study. Like I think there's this clinical trial out of Texas that you have to go through to be able to prescribe this wow. drug. And they still ended up with a colectomy. While it was useful some of the time, they would still have flares where they would yeah. have complete like ataxia of the, of the intestine. Yikes. Hmm. Oh, Just a random clinical pearl of sorts. I had a patient with severe gastroparesis after COVID. And what helped for her was uh, what they teach for patients with Ehlers-Danlos, POTS, et cetera, specifically for POTS, body compression with the Spanx type bodysuit. Wow. And that solved her gastroparesis. Really? Wow. The whole gastroparesis? Yes. Did she have a hypermobility picture? No, it was POTS. It was post-COVID POTS. Mm -hmm. And so with, and she had gastroparesis wow. and, and POTS post-COVID. That she didn't have hypermobility that we know of, um, but I was just surprised that that completely resolved it. Out of just total curiosity, did she have ferritin, low ferritin? Um, I don't think so. Why? What's your thought process there? Well, in in folks with POTS, you have to get the ferritin up because their body has you need ferritin higher than the normal population to perfuse the postural muscles. So Whoa. that yeah. is like a crazy useful clinical pearl. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so it's more of an indication for infusions for those folks. Sounds good. Yeah, no, she, she, I don't think she had low ferritin. Hmm. Anyway, sorry, yeah, go ahead. Cool. Yeah, <laughs> that is really cool. Um, the remaining category, I think, unless I'm missing something here, is prokinetics. I mean, sorry, probiotics. Oh yeah. Um, this is my favorite. Yeah, um, because they are showing, and there are cool studies coming out showing that certain strains of probiotics in different age groups show prokinetic effects in the gut. Um, so it's uh, what I found, and maybe you've had a different experience with this. It's grouped into infants, children, and adults. Lactobacillus ruteri in infants, Lactobacillus casei, and Bifidobacterium brevae in children, um, and then Lactobacillus plantarum in adults. Um, and specifically in adults, it showed to increase defecation frequency. Are they using a certain amount of dose or is it just the strain? Great question. 
Great question. No answer. <laughs> no Based answer. on how you're looking at me. Okay. <laughs> you know, and you, you let me know what you're using. I've been using, um, when I was researching some of the probiotics for a talk, the Lactobacillus plantarum had a lot of good studies for um, irritable bowel syndrome in general. Have you guys found a regular Lactobacillus plantarum that you're using? I am so torn. This is why I'm so torn. I, you know, because the way probiotic research is going right now is they're no longer studying multi-strain combinations like what they did a decade ago. Now they're studying it like they're studying a drug mm -hmm. where they're like this particular strain of lactobacillus, rhamnosus, GG, H1416 mm -hmm. does this, right? And I'm very torn because I got really excited about this one particular product, which I can remember the brand, but I can't remember the strain and the research, the data looks phenomenal, like 20,000 person studies, super amazing results. And it was like preventing SIBO after using PPIs or, you know, uh, motility for constipation. And so I started giving everybody this yeah. one particular strain, right? right? If I saw nothing, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm not even sure if I saw one patient mm -hmm. respond the way that these 20,000 people in the studies were right. studied to respond. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, this particular strain is owned by a gigantic pharmaceutical company that has the money to throw into collecting the data. Mm -hmm. And that's the way we're going with probiotic research right I now. Know. Right? I get, I, there's such cool data, but clinically, I just haven't seen probiotics alone right. do too much. Yeah, I mean, my mentors who had been, you know, treating patients since the 70s, they they were never big on probiotics. They said, you know, work on the other GI flora and things sort of re-equilibrate on their own with diet. I mean, because there's probiotics on our food. I do see them to be therapeutic in some patients, but what I learned was there's, of course, no perfect probiotic. And I also have some concerns with giving the same one over long term with, with you know, our researchers on Dr. Pimentel says, you know, giving the same thing over and over to someone who's already overgrowing things may not be a great idea. Right. And then Dr. Right. Rao's research on potential connection to brain fog and patients that were producing certain byproducts from the same strain. So right. I wonder about using more like probiotic suppositories. Um, the only ones I know of are super expensive. So I suspect we could easily have people make those, totally. yeah. um, but then we could avoid the potential for overgrowth in the other parts of the intestine where we don't want it. And I, you know, recently I've been using some probiotics and I think that it's worth throwing some spaghetti mm -hmm. against the wall, especially yeah. if they're research-based, but also using them with prebiotics. Mm -hmm. I think prebiotics are going to have a moment just totally. like probiotics just finish its moments right. uh, because prebiotics do upregulate the natural growth. Plus prebiotics are generally fiber. So you're working on one of those OTC pathways for constipation. And some prebiotics, like the new data that's coming out on prebiotics is showing there are specific strains that don't cause bloating. Mm -hmm. And so we can kind of hand select our prebiotics right. and then pair them with probiotics. Maybe yeah. right. I, just, I feel like, I feel like now that pharma has gotten into it, I'm not sure I can trust the clinical data. I mean, I just, I'm the... not seeing it clinically. Yeah. That's my problem is I'm not right. seeing it clinically. Yeah, I agree. What is your prebiotic of choice? Do you have one? Because I found uh, yeah. a lot of people, it's really hit or miss what people are going to tolerate prebiotic-wise. I also have moments. Yeah. Anybody who's finished my residency knows I have moments. Right now, my moment, right now I'm using a lot of mega prebiotic. Okay. Uh, they're prebiotic, they're mucosa, and they're um, spore-based biotic, mm -hmm. probiotic. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing some good efficacy, right. seeing traction for it. We'll see if that bears out over the next couple of years. Right. But right now I'm seeing good efficacy with that. Dr. Sand? Psyllium husk. Is my favorite. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's, it's cheap. So it's easy. Well you can tolerated. put it in food. What's we, your What's your dosing on that for people? Well, I I tell people that it's disgusting. The texture is really really gross, and some people are into that, and some people aren't. So if people are willing to do a powder, 
um, I start with a teaspoon and work oh. up to maybe a tablespoon, tablespoon and a half. And if they just know they're not going to be able to be compliant with that, I start with three caps with a meal. Right. And I remind them it's going to be a lot of caps because we're putting a food into a capsule. Yes. Um, and then I work up to like, it really depends somewhere between six and nine a day. And I've just been having people, having people bake with that too. Great. Yeah. So then you don't have to taste it. And the... for vegan baking, yep. so like I'll use a yeah. sodium flax egg. Okay. It actually works pretty close to an egg. I mean, yeah. you can't scramble it. Yeah. But it really binds. It's a binder. Like, yeah. Yep. Do you use it in the mold world, psyllium? Psyllium, you know, I so I always, I use any kind of fiber that they tolerate. I've gotten away from always doing supplement binders. I was never big on prescription binders. Um, but if they tolerate the flax chia or psyllium, or there's various, you know, all, all different types of food-based fibers, I'll have them start with, I'll have them cycle through. I have a list of like, try this mm -hmm. one if that doesn't work, you know, any of those that you tolerate. Mm -hmm. I don't really see the need anymore to always use some type of, additional non-food based uh, fiber for mold detox stuff. I Can I talk about that right now that's circling through? Yes. You know, I, I feel like because of my clinical thinking, because I'm a naturopath, I tend to think that the human body did better when we lived in the natural elements. Right. right. And in the natural elements, foods grow in seasons. Mm -hmm. And so there would be a time when you'd like pick like 300 pounds of chanterelle mushrooms, you'd eat mushrooms nonstop for two weeks yeah. and then it's done. And then three months later, you pick a thousand pounds of morels, right? It's true. I feel like that's cycling. That world. Right, cycle, cycle <laughs> That cycling is so key. I think you're so right on that because that is more, I think our, our the biodiversity of the intestine right. was based on these cycles. That makes sense. That's really smart. I agree with that. Yeah. Um, that was really it for the main oh, that's it. Oh, that that's it. it. I do, I do oh, want to make a couple shout outs though. Um, pelvic floor PT. Oh. Biofeedback has good data behind it. For dysenergic constipation yep. for both of those. Yep. Um, and then, you know, there are always enemas debated, um, especially for dependence, you know, of those muscles. And then um, something that I learned again from this Herbsiders episode um, that we all know, but when you go, when you need to go, go mm -hmm. don't hold it right. um what what was new to me is that that stool bolus will actually go back up um if you don't go <laughs> Whoa. and it'll actually signal to slow transit throughout the whole digestive tract so you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you already have constipation and you hold it i'm just thinking about all those kids right now yeah that that's exactly the kids and they all get constipated we gotta teach people how to poop Okay, so you're gonna have to give us a few tips on when to suspect pelvic floor PT is needed, and when I to. Almost, I'm almost gonna suggest that that's a different episode. Okay, we'll <laughs> yeah. talk about that a different great, episode. Yeah, great thing. Biofeedback, I would think about for people who we know are in sort of fight or flight a lot, yeah. <clears throat> and have a sympathetic, predominant system. They'll actually do it with bowel retraining, um, so they'll link it to teach people how to poop too. So even if they're not like anxious about it, people who've just gotten so detached, mm -hmm. whether through trauma or anything right. else, learning how to coordinate those muscles to right. have the bowel movement. Again. And I remember trying to find someone in Portland after I listened to one of Dr. Rao's lectures and I went to the national site he recommended. Is there someone in Portland who will test for dysenergia so, and also do the, the biofeedback? I mean, I think the GI doctors or any of us could do a rectal exam and I Get usually it. send to the gastro for anemonometry. Mm -hmm. And and they're doing it. Do you have to oh, yeah. specify that on your order or they'll just... I generally I generally do. Okay. Yes, I want to tell them. So that. they're mostly doing it in office? 
uh, in the lab. Okay. Because it's like an x-ray of you pooping out a balloon. Mm. It's really a terrible test. It's super I gross. mean, I think if you do a rectal exam and you know the patient, you can get a sense of if they have. Exactly. Um, yeah. But I, I can't say down. I've done that regularly in my practice. No, I think it's a good all. idea to do. And then you're also inspecting for hemorrhoids and other things that go with constipation. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Anything else before we recap all of the amazing things we've learned? <laughs> I think that covers it. Okay, okay, so let me give my recap, and then Dr. Kabadi, you'll give your recap if sure. I miss anything. Okay. So wh what I got was there are a bunch of different OTCs. There's lifestyle and diet, which you always want to start with. Then there's OTC stuff that can be effective, but also can de get dependence. Yep. Then we move into the drug classes. The drug classes are broken down into like antidepressants, which take a long time to work, secretagogues, which work, but might have might have side effects like diarrhea, mm -hmm. the prokinetics, which we love more than anything else. And then all of these other ones with like the macrolid antibiotics. And then the last one is, oh, Donperidone and all the dopamine, dopaminergic drugs, yep. right? And all of those, basically, we love percalipride as the take home. <laughs> right. Uh, but it doesn't always work. And there's some new ones coming down the pipe. And it enhances your memory. And it enhances your memory. Oh, right. We could start memory. prescribing Amazing. it for that. <laughs> right? Yeah, I just sure. had a patient ask. I'm sure the FDA would love that. Um, no, but the drug company would love yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, so that was, so that was my takeaway. I have nothing to add. That was a good summary. That was a really I, good summary. Yeah, I completely agree. That was a super awesome episode. Thank you so much, Dr. Sand. Yeah, that was amazing. Yeah. Great chat. Thanks for joining us today. Stay tuned. We release episodes every two weeks. If you like this episode, please subscribe and don't forget to rate and review us to help spread the turd nerd word. Eee!